Dead Air by Scott Overton. Previously in Dead Air, devastated by Candace's injuries and her rejection of him, Lee Garrett has decided that the only way of regaining his life is by forcing a confrontation with his enemies. Now, here's chapter 22. The evidence of age lay everywhere. Vanished buildings, vanished railroads, vanished lives, all crumbled into a veneer of soot. Lee shuffled along a grimy sidewalk past blackened clumps of snow and blackened lumps of clothing that covered bodies using a door sill for a bed. Compared to that, even the whole of a room he'd rented at the Crown Hotel was a palace. He hadn't needed makeup to provide deep shadows under his eyes. The overnight din of the streets took care of that. The wail of police sirens and emergency vehicles, the steam factory cacophony of buses and trucks, babble of drunken bar patrons, and the thunderous crash of shunting rail cars that made him think the roof was crashing in. He'd bought foam earplugs, but had been afraid to use them, knowing that his ears were his only defense against an intruder. He passed an alley as a bus passed him. The smell of burnt coffee mixed with diesel fumes in a thin fog that stuck to the back of his throat. The odor of spoiled pastrami and urine assaulted his nostrils from stairwells, alleys, and arched doorways, momentarily cleared by a passing breeze, only to renew its offensive around the next bend. He'd had enough foresight to get smaller bills for the rent, not wanting anyone to think he was a drug dealer. He'd even crumpled the fresh bank bills during the bus ride downtown, then borrowed the grime from a factory wall to smudge them into anonymity. The hotel desk clerk had been as dull as the surrounding wallpaper, but not so lethargic as to forget to ask for Lee's ID, even though he'd paid cash. Lee had pulled out another rumpled ten-dollar bill, pointed to the picture, and offered a line from a bad gangster movie. That's me, and I like to share my picture with my friends. The clerk had snorted the closest thing to a laugh in his repertoire, flipped the guest book closed, and tossed Lee the room key, using a head gesture to indicate the direction of the stairs. Staying at a hotel eliminated any chance of being taken for a vagrant. For that, he would have had to sleep in one of the men's shelters or on the street, but his plan was to regain his life, not find another way to lose it. He shuffled toward breakfast in a pair of beat-up old Oxfords he only used for yard work. The insoles were mostly gone, the remnants like gravel under his feet. Both heels sloped toward the outer edge from wear, and the slant pulled his ankles over, giving him a bow-legged gait. He caught himself wondering about his next chance to see his chiropractor, even as he knew that the people around him were wondering about their next meal. He kicked a clump of dirty snow into the street and watched as it was run over by a passing bus. The entrance to the soup kitchen was along the side of a dull red brick building next to the railway tracks. The double metal doors were scratched and beaten, painted over with chipped and peeling blue paint. Near the latch plate was a gouge that looked as if someone had attacked the door with an axe. Hot, moist air escaped through the opening door and wrapped around him, invading his nostrils with a smell of bacon and onions. The first breath was appetizing, but a sour smell of unwashed bodies and stale cigarette smoke soon took over as he approached the tables. No one was allowed to smoke there, but the residue clung to their clothes. A faint tang of alcohol, too. At first glance, he thought the only patrons were men, but he eventually decided that two were women, and another might be. 
The shapeless clothing was like a uniform, in colors designed to vanish into a background. Dark work pants in faded cotton or corduroy, cheap nylon coats of navy or soiled khaki. The only real colors came from the many lumberjack-style shirts, usually showing a patch of white at the collar, evidence of a t-shirt or two underneath. There were a few ragged sweaters of indeterminate shades. He expected the faces to look the same, too, painted with a kindred expression of hopelessness, but he was wrong. They were all different. Young, old, tanned or pale, long hair, cropped hair, and almost no hair at all. Features drawn from a smattering of racial types. Not lifeless. Worn, yes, inevitably unshaven. But the stubbled smiles and toothless mouths open in mid-joke told of the resiliency of humor, even among the disenfranchised. A survival mechanism, no doubt. About a third of the soup kitchen's clientele was native Canadian, Anishinaabe, the first peoples. Their black hair was the giveaway, because their darker skin tones didn't stand out among the whites with street tans. They also seemed to generate most of the laughter. He noticed one young woman with dark eyes and full lips curved into a good smile, but a frame too thin to be healthy. She caught him looking and stared frankly back. He took his plate of food over to an empty table on the far side of the room. The fare was mostly under-seasoned, plentiful home-fried potatoes, a few bits of dried bacon, and lots of toast thanks to donations of day-old product from bakeries. The coffee was cheap and strong, with powdered creamer. He ate slowly and tried to pick up bits of conversation without appearing to be listening, but similar chatter could be heard in any coffee shop the hockey game of the night before, the milder spell of weather compared to last year's cold. One man told of a minor scuffle with the law, and a woman two tables away had witnessed a big win at a bingo three nights earlier. Her companions had heard the story often enough that they interrupted her to correct details until she cuffed one of them and fell into silence, brooding over her coffee mug. Lee couldn't imagine how she got the money to play bingo, or didn't want to. He heard nothing useful, that was far too much to expect so soon. The soup kitchen wouldn't be a hotbed for racial purists or the pampered and bored middle-class youths who were drawn to a group like the Skins. He might have had better luck in a high school or college campus. But there was no way he could have infiltrated a community like that without instantly giving himself away. On the streets, he might pick up something second or third-hand from other victims. Even here he might be recognized, if not by the patrons, then by one of the volunteers or the administrator of the food kitchen itself. He'd met her. He didn't think she would see through several days of stubble and his shabby street costume. By the time he finished his second cup of coffee, no one had said much to him, but they weren't snubbing him. There was probably an unspoken code that said to leave the newcomer alone until he felt like joining in. He deposited his empty dishes on the counter and caught the eyes of the young native woman again as he made his way to the door. The wind wasn't strong, but it had a fierce bite after the warmth inside. He pulled his coat up and drew his head deeper into the collar. With no real plan in mind, he decided to try a more sheltered route back to the Crown Hotel. As he passed the bare brick walls of a dry-cleaning warehouse, he almost didn't notice the small figure huddled near a window well. A man of unguessable age squatted next to a vent that spat a continuous plume of steam. Sharp eyes watched Lee pass, and the head gave a bird-like nod, showing a smile that was a few teeth short. "'It's a glorious day!' the voice croaked. "'A glorious day!' He looked up into the dull, overcast sky as if to confirm his assessment. 
Lee couldn't think of a reply and kept on walking. A block farther on, a window displayed some piles of clothing, a second-hand store operated by a center for mentally challenged people. They had drop boxes in a few locations around town. Donated clothes were cleaned and occasionally mended by the clients of the center, and then sold to raise money for day-to-day -day operations. On a whim, he pushed through the door and relished the warmth. Two older women were rummaging through a pile of sweaters in the corner to the left of the entrance, and farther back he saw three teenagers, a girl and two boys, at a bin of blue jeans. The lone store clerk was watching the trio from the front counter as they carelessly picked through the piles and flung unwanted pants haphazardly to the side of the wide box. Hoping to blend in, Lee went to a rack of flannel shirts nearby and began to check through them for his size. He couldn't help but overhear the teens as they spouted puerile assessments of each other and humanity in general. Most of their sentences were simply vehicles for the word fuck and its variations. The torn jeans they wore looked newer than the ones they were tossing aside, and the assortment of metalware in their ears and noses told him they didn't need to buy second-hand. He'd met many young people he admired, but he could only hope the world would never fall into the hands of purposeless zombies like these. The three seemed just like the type to get involved with a gang like the Skins, but their vulgar prattle was no use to him at all. He looked over at the middle-aged clerk. Her expression held a hint of fear, but not adult fear, a childlike discomfort or lack of comprehension. He guessed that she was mentally challenged herself. Customers like these would be well outside her comfort zone. Her eyes went wide and she put a hand to her mouth. Lee looked back and saw the teens had begun to fling pairs of jeans at each other. Some missed and landed on nearby bins, but others fell to the floor and were stepped on as the trio shifted and ducked, laughing idiotically. His blood shot to a boil. "'Knock it off!' he roared, the sound echoing off the walls. The room froze in tableau. The shocked faces of the culprits turned toward him. Their bodies stopped in mid-motion. The tallest one straightened. "'Fuck off, man! What's it to you?' Without thinking, Lee stepped toward them, his slow pace menacing. All of a sudden, in his mind, these three punks were responsible for the collapse of his life. "'You want to find out what it is to me, little man?' he hissed. He was only a dozen steps away and still advancing. The tallest of the teens was Lee's height or more, but without his broad shoulders or bulk, or the look of someone who wanted blood. "'Come on, let's get out of here. Leave this crap for the assholes,' the boy spat, then grabbed the girl's arm and yanked it fiercely. The three put on their sulkiest faces and hurried out of the building, trying to look casual about it. Lee found he'd been holding his breath and slowly let it out. Damn! If he'd hoped to ingratiate himself with the downtown crowd, he'd just blown that all to hell. On his first day, too. It reminded him again that he was out of his depth. He snapped out of his reverie to find the clerk looking at him. Thanks, mister, she said with a tentative smile, probably hoping he wouldn't turn his anger on her. You saved me a lot of work, I guess. I seen those kids come in, but mostly they don't cause trouble, just sometimes. Anyways, I'm glad you was here. He bobbed his head and said, I'll take this shirt over here. He grabbed the nearest one in his size, paid for it, and made his way back onto the street. There was no sign of the three troublemakers on his way back to the Crown Hotel. That was just as well. He wasn't feeling heroic, only depressed. The next morning at the soup kitchen, some of the faces smiled as they looked at him. 
It wasn't hard to guess that he was the subject of conversation. Word of what had happened in the second-hand store might pass as fresh news in a dreary existence, but he still ate alone that day and the next. Passing the hours shuffling through the streets, he tried to overhear scraps of conversation, but there were few of those. Even a few days of milder weather didn't mean people stayed outside if they had anywhere warmer to be. The small knots of teenagers he encountered ignored him. The three teens he'd rousted had probably kept their humiliation to themselves, and he was glad of that. He didn't want to become the target of another vengeful gang. One was enough. He scrutinized each passing face as closely as he dared. Although his voice was his trademark, his appearance was well known too, and his disguise was minimal. There was a real danger that one of his enemies would recognize him without him knowing about it. He treated himself one night by going for a beer in a nearby bar. The Old Town Tavern had nothing of the flavor of an old English pub. A small TV in the corner displayed a sports channel no one was watching. No eyes met his as he sat at the bar. Even the bartender showed no interest in conversation. He was doing a crossword puzzle and didn't look up when Lee left. This wasn't life on the slow track. It was life on a forgotten siding. A record store leaked a few bars of Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone. There really were people who had nothing and nothing to lose. And now Lee felt just as invisible. As he was standing in line for breakfast, the young native woman he'd noticed before came up beside him for more coffee. He looked at her and she smiled back. I seen you here a few days, she said. You new in town? He'd prepared a cover story, but after days of being ignored, he had trouble remembering it. New in this part of town. I used to live on the west side. Then I, uh, lost my job. The fewer details he supplied, the fewer lies he'd have to remember. The woman simply nodded. Unemployment was an all-too-familiar circumstance. You can come sit with us, if you want. He hesitated, then nodded, and carried his food to her table. Six faces smiled up at him, and there was a chair waiting. The one other Caucasian man in the group was the only one to introduce himself. I'm Earl, the old fart of the bunch. His companions laughed, but the young woman said, Rose is almost as old. A small figure with grizzled gray hair confirmed her sex and her age with a giggle. Earl introduced the others as Vern, Harvey, and David. The young woman was Nadia. A closer look reinforced Lee's first impression that she was attractive, with lively eyes and strong cheekbones. Her smile was unusually white and even. The first day he'd thought she might have a cold, but the light rasp was her normal voice. After an awkward silence, he said, Oh, I'm Sid. Sid Brown. Shit, Brown? croaked Rose. She threw her head back in a loud laugh, showing a mouth nearly empty of teeth. The others joined in the laughter. Lee shook his head in mock dismay. Earl pointed out that Harvey was called Burger, and David was known as Big Dick, which he gleefully insisted was his compensation for being short. Sid had already become shit, and shit he remained. The conversation turned to mundane things and anecdotes about friends that left Lee on the sidelines. He gave a reply if questioned and joined in the frequent laughter, though he understood few of the jokes. He'd begun to think of an excuse to leave when Rose turned to Nadia with a conspiratorial look and said, I think he's all right. Others at the table grunted their agreement. They figure you're a cop, eh? Nadia laughed. That's why nobody talked to you right away. Are you a cop? Lee was stunned. A cop? Why would you think that? Harvey answered for her. 
"'Cause you smell too good.' He gave a howl, drawing attention from around the room. Nadia grinned. "'Yeah, you smell like soap. Talk good, too. And the way you stopped those kids in the store there. We heard about it, eh? So you must be a cop.' She looked at him expectantly. "'No, I'm not a cop.' He felt himself blushing. I'm, I was a teacher, a history teacher, high school. He looked around at their faces. Some things went wrong and I lost my job. Then my wife divorced me. Divorce, that explains how you wound up here, Earl said, drawing more laughter. Rose patted Lee's arm with a shriveled hand. You're okay, shit brown, she declared. Don't smell like shit, though, David added, and that reminded someone of a story. The attention passed from Lee, and he was grateful. If it was a breakthrough, it changed nothing else in his routine. He wandered the same streets in the same pattern, as if initiative were paralyzed by this grim world. The old dry cleaners was a regular landmark, and the old man was always there, slouched against the wall. The heat that was waste to the dry cleaners' business was life to him. As Lee passed, the man would give him a wave and point to the sky. A glorious day, ain't it? Glorious! Insane words under the circumstances, but there was no insanity in his eyes. Lee never replied except with a slight wave of the hand he hoped no one else would notice. Two ancient phone booths he passed were rarely used, so he checked for voice messages every couple of days. The only one had come from Cheryl Davis, wanting to make sure he was still alive— when he called, she had no progress to report, only a few suggestions to watch for activity in empty buildings, especially at night, and keep an eye out for flyers or newspaper ads that hinted at meetings without a well-defined purpose. Street gangs didn't advertise, but there might be a loose cooperation among other neo-Nazis, she said. He thanked her and hung up the phone. He ached to call Candace, especially during the long nights but he was sure her mother would answer, and he had little hope that she would pass on a message. Candace might not even know that he'd dropped out of sight, or worse, she might not care. A voice in his head said that was for the best. The rest of his brain told the voice to go to hell. When he sat down for breakfast a couple of days later, he was shocked to see Nadia's face marred by an ugly bruise. Several shades of purple were outlined in black and sickly yellow. She held the injured side away from him, and her lopsided smile barely twitched, as if the movement brought her pain. No one at the table seemed willing to mention the subject. Their conversation was strained. Finally Rose caught him stealing a glance and blurted, "'Some punks jumped her! Some young white punks!' He felt branded by the words. "'Goddamn cowards!' Earl said. "'Caught her sleeping. Nobody else around here at night, so punks come looking for trouble.' Nadia's head was bowed. Had they raped her, too? Lee wondered. They came into your room? he asked softly. Room? She looked as if he'd spit a cockroach from his mouth. She sleeps over by the old rail shed, Vern said, in the shunting yard. Not inside, can't get inside, always locked, no windows. The words struck like a fist. He'd never thought of these people he knew, people who shared meals with him, living on the street like the man beside the dry cleaners. Nadia, too. Why hadn't he expected that? Because it was too ugly? Made their plight too personal? Nadia's voice was even huskier than usual. You mean you got a room shit? No wonder you smell like that. I still had a bit of money left over, he stammered. He read surprise in their faces. Condemnation, too? Rose narrowed her wrinkled eyes at him. Why the hell you want to eat here? You could buy food. 
sit with other people who smell like soap. I don't have a lot left, he protested. I figured I might still be able to get a job if I got some sleep and stayed clean. He didn't know if the explanation was sufficient. Probably none would be. His very presence among them was a kind of betrayal. Where you got a room, shit? Harvey rumbled quietly. At the Crown? There was no point lying about it. He half expected them to throw him out on the street. Instead, they seemed to come to an unspoken agreement. Earl leaned toward him and said quietly, Nadia, she's some beat up. Cold, scared. Punks might come back. He sat back in his chair and crossed his arms, waiting. He'd said all he felt needed to be said. The others seemed to think his meaning was crystal clear. Suddenly, Lee understood. His stomach twisted. God, he couldn't do that. It would be disastrous to his plans. Except the alternative was to leave this place and never show his face again, without having accomplished a damned thing. He turned slowly toward the woman beside him. She didn't meet his eyes. Nadia, do you want to stay at my place for a while? To his surprise, she shook her head. No, I'm good. Please. He reached over to touch her hand. This time she smiled. Well, if you're going to beg, sure. Okay, I'll come, maybe for a few days. The bright gratitude in her eyes twisted his soul again. But you better treat me like a lady. And she raised her nose like a debutante determined to defend her virtue. Rose cackled with glee. He told Nadia he'd take her to the hotel right after dinner that night. In the meantime, he made his way to the phone booth just inside the entrance of a drugstore. Maybe Davis would have some advice for him. Maybe she could even tell him how the people of the streets were supposed to defend themselves without a police presence. But his anger at the cops evaporated when he heard the strain in her voice. Lee, you got my message? No, why? What's happened? It's your car. My car? I left it in my driveway, at the apartment. And someone tried to break into your place, but it looks like they got scared off. Probably by your neighbor going to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Except before they left, they doused your car with gasoline and lit a match. Jesus! He tried to absorb the picture. It's destroyed? The insurance company will probably write it off. Three sides of it are badly damaged, but your neighbor saw the flames right away and called the fire department. Thank God they got there before the gas tank went up. Let me guess. No evidence. The surveillance cameras didn't get anything useful. No face. Nondescript clothes. Lee felt fury throb in his veins, but there were store customers walking by. He turned his face and hissed into the phone. What about Dieter? Did you get anything on him? He's got airtight alibis for all the times of the attacks. He denies leaking the story, too. But he did it all right. How do you know? The prick had the balls to smile at me as he left the chief's office. So that's it, then? No, that's not it. We don't have any evidence against him yet, but I happen to know the chief's been talking to the head of the police union. Trust me, the professional standards unit will be investigating Dieter. They'll nail him. A moron like that gives us all a bad name. But there's something else. What more could there be? We've got cops watching Candace and your family. What? Why? The one side of your car that wasn't damaged? That was because they left a message in spray paint. It said, I know where they live.
In Chapter 23 of Dead Air, Lee Garrett finds the unexpected companionship of Nadia a sore trial while he seems to make no progress tracking down his attackers until a breakthrough comes from an unexpected direction. You can read all of Lee's journey in the print or ebook versions of Dead Air available through most book outlets. Go to my website scottoverton.ca to find out more. Thanks again to Audionautics.com for our theme music, and thank you for joining us. I'm Scott Overton.